we will have a renewed resolve to follow Jesus more closely, that we will have a greater desire to study the word, to know his character and his attributes, and that our faith in him will be strengthened so that we can stand firm in his power and might uh, when different situations may come up. But before we get into the study, let's pray. Father God, we just come before you, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. And Father, I just thank you for the book of Colossians, Lord. I thank you for chapter 1 and all that it has for us, Lord. I pray that you would give us open hearts and open ears and open minds, Father, to just drink in the things that you have for us in this chapter. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to set aside the cares of the day, Lord, and plans for tomorrow, Father, that we would just look upon you and know that you are the utmost and the greatest and the highest. You are our number one, Lord. And I just pray that you would just continue to work in us, Lord, and that uh, fruit will abound in us, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we're going to begin the book of Colossians, and I want to give you just a brief background on the book, um, because chapter 1 is just filled with so much uh, that we need to cover. So first of all, the letter to the Colossians is another of the prison epistles, which Paul wrote during his Roman imprisonment, uh, at the same time that he wrote Ephesians and Philemon, uh, around 63 or 64 A.D., the city of Colossae was situated about 100 miles inland and east of Ephesus. And Colossae formed a triangle of cities along with Laodicea and Heropolis. Colossae was situated near major highways, which became an important trade route. And early in the 5th century B.C., Colossae was a prosperous city, and it was known for its uh, fabric dyes. But uh, during the time of Paul, uh, it, was, um, it had declined to a small town. There was, however, a large Jewish colony in Colossae, and there was also a constant influx of new ideas and doctrines that came from the east through this trade route. So it was, in a sense, fertile ground for false doctrines. Now, the Colossian church was an outgrowth of Paul's two-year ministry in Ephesus, and you can read more about that in Acts chapters 19 and 20. And the witness of the church at Ephesus was uh, growing, and it was becoming great. And at some point, Epaphras and Philemon went from Colossae, and they went to go see Paul. And it is believed that they heard the gospel message, they became believers, and then they carried that gospel message back to Colossae. And uh, eventually, Epaphras became the pastor of the Colossian church, according to Colossians 1.7. And Philemon uh, began a home church, according to Philemon chapter 2, or Philemon 2, pardon me. Uh, when Paul was in prison in Rome, Epaphras went to help Paul for a while. And during that time, he probably related to Paul the dangerous heresies that had begun to be spread in Colossae. So the letter to the Colossians was written to address the false teachings that were taking root there. 
And these false doctrines were a combination of mysticism and uh, Jewish legalism and Gnosticism, which uh, we may touch on just a little, but it'll probably be covered more in uh, other later chapters. Uh, though Paul never went to Colossae himself, he did have a love for the brethren there. And he wrote the letter not only to refute the heretical teachings, but also to establish the truth of the gospel there and to encourage and to strengthen the Colossian believers. And so he sent Tychicus and Onesimus to deliver the letter to the Colossians. Um, there is just so much in this chapter. Um, so I'm, I'm, I couldn't break it up into just three sections. I, I have five or six maybe. I don't know. So I'm just going to give them to you as we get to them. Okay, I think that will be easier. All right, so first I want us to look at Paul's greeting in verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here Paul gives his typical greeting, you know, first of all, he identifies himself by name as the writer of the letter, and he also identifies himself as the apostle or an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Pastor Chuck, in his commentary, notes that Paul probably makes notes of his being an apostle, and the word apostle means one sent out, because he's going to be addressing things of doctrinal error. So he wants them to know that he'll be speaking with apostolic authority as one commissioned and empowered to speak as Jesus' representative. Paul also mentions that Timothy is with him. And uh, we need to notice, too, that the letter is addressed to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Uh, I don't know that we have... You all look really familiar, but I'll, I'll go ahead and mention it anyway. Um, if there's anyone here who may not know, the word saint is used in Scripture for those set apart for God's use. And the word brethren is used for those of the family of God. So when we accept Jesus into our hearts as our Lord and Savior, we become saints. You know, we set our lives apart from the world for God's use, and we become brethren. We become brothers and sisters in the family of God. Then Paul gives this typical greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul uses the Greek word charis, meaning grace, and the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. When we come to faith in Christ, we accept by faith his grace, his unmerited favor in the gift of salvation. And once we have that unmerited favor, we have peace with God. So Paul, in a way, is wishing both of these things in his greetings to the fellow believers. God's unmerited favor to you and God's peace. In verses 3 to 8, I want to look at Paul's thankfulness for the Colossian church. Verses 3 to 8 says, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven 
of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So in these verses, Paul expresses his thankfulness to God for the Colossian church uh, because of four things. Um, But before he expresses his thankfulness, in verse 3, Paul assures the church that he and Timothy pray for them. And I think this must have given them great joy, knowing that Paul took time to pray for them, especially since he never met them. He never went to Colossae but he loved them nonetheless. And I'm sure that Pastor X and Trudy pray for this church. And we need to make it a priority to pray, not only for Calvary Pasadena, but also for missionaries and for Christians throughout the world, especially those who are undergoing persecution right now. James 5.16 tells us that we are to pray for one another. So now Paul's going to express his thankfulness because of four things. In verse 4, Paul tells the Colossians that he gives thanks to God because he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. He's thankful knowing that they were saved and that they believe in Jesus as their Savior. Also in verse 4, Paul was thankful because of their love for all the saints. And love, as we know, is to be the mark of every believer Jesus said in John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we need to ask ourselves, do I show love for others in my words and in my actions? You know, Uh, Can people tell that I belong to Jesus by my loving ways? Or do I walk more according to my flesh and I'm constantly gossiping, backbiting, causing divisions, having a critical spirit? We need to examine that. In verse 5, Paul was thankful that they believed and loved because of their hope, which is laid up for them in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4 tells us that as believers, God has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. The Colossian people had this hope, and we should have this hope as well. We should live knowing that Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. And as we've heard time and again, you know, earth is not our home. We're just passing through. One commentator says, our hope is in heaven because Jesus is there. And we want to be wherever he is. And I thought that was kind of neat. Finally, in verse 6, Paul was thankful that the gospel message was bringing forth fruit in the Colossian believers. In John 15, 16, Jesus said to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. 
You know, as we walk with Jesus day by day, as we study his word, as we go to him in prayer, our lives will begin to change. And the fruit of the spirit will start to grow in us. And Galatians 5, 22 and 23 tells us that the fruit of the spirit is agape love. And it's manifested in as joy and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, this fruit was evident in the Colossian believers, and it should be evident in us as well. And if we don't see this fruit increasing in us, then we really need to examine how well we are abiding, abiding with Jesus and, if necessary, get back on track. Next, I want to look at verses 9 to 14, where we'll see Paul's prayer for the Colossian church. Verses 9 to 14 says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, notice, first of all, in verse 9, that Paul says that he prays for them unceasingly. You know, Paul was probably a man of prayer, and he probably prayed constantly, especially for all of the churches. He also wanted the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You know, Paul knew that it was important for the Colossian believers to know his will and what he was uh, requiring of them. And I found it interesting that Spurgeon said of this verse, Paul would not have them ignorant. He knew that spiritual ignorance is the constant source of error, instability, and sorrow. And therefore, he desired that they might be soundly taught in the things of God. And this is important for us as well. God's will and his character and his attributes are revealed in his word. And so it's important that we study his word daily to become familiar with them. You know, and we're also so blessed to have a loving and caring pastor who goes to great lengths to be sure that we have a good spiritual understanding of God's word. Pastor X warns us and he makes us aware of false teachings that's invading the church. And he teaches us the word. From various perspectives. And I'm reminded of that counterfeit expert that he has told us about on several occasions, you know, who said that he didn't spend a lot of time studying counterfeit bills, but rather he spent most of all of his time studying the real bill, the authentic one, so that when the counterfeit came along, he would recognize it. And it's the same with us. You know, we need to be really familiar and study God's word daily so that when false doctrines do come along, a red flag will go up and you'll like, hmm, that doesn't sound quite right. I'm going to check it out. You know, 
We also need to know God's word so that when trials come, we don't fall into discouragement or depression, but rather we can stand firm on God's word and believe his promises. Next, in verse 10, Paul prayed that they would have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. We need to remember that walking entails forward progress. You cannot walk well forward if you're looking back or if you're looking to the side. I've tried. (laughs) It doesn't work. Um, A walk worthy of the Lord means ordering our behavior according to God's word, to live according to his ways and not our ways. It means to trust God, to abide in him, to read the word daily, to pray, and to share the word whenever the opportunities come up. It also means keeping short accounts, uh, remembering to be humble enough to fess up when we mess up. Uh, It means walking humbly and not proud, wanting to gain recognition from others. You know, Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And if we develop a worthy walk, we will be fully pleasing to the Lord because we will be obedient to his word. Also in verse 10, Paul prayed that they would be fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You know, being fruitful means that we are growing and developing and maturing spiritually as we spend time with the Lord. And again, as we pray, as we study the word, because good works are the outworking of Christ's life in us. Jesus said in John fifteen four and 5, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And as we abide in Jesus, we will increase in our knowledge of God. You know, I, I can't encourage you enough uh, to really study God's character and his attributes Uh, So many times we fall apart, and it all boils down to how big is your God? You know, is he a little God who can do just little things, or is he a mighty God who can do anything? You know, and I love how the Lord uh, spoke to Abraham, in I believe in Genesis, and, and he asked him, you know, is there anything too hard for me? And it was a rhetorical question. The answer was no. But we forget that. And so we have to remind ourselves and remember who God is and what he can do. In verse 11, Paul prays that the Colossians be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. And the word strengthened here denotes a continuous strengthening, a steady supply of strength. And the word patience here in the Greek refers to steadfastness or endurance, that which enables one to hold one's position in battle. And it's used here in relation to adverse circumstances. And the word long-suffering here in the Greek refers to perseverance, as in dealing with difficult people. 
So Paul here was praying that God would continuously strengthen the Colossians with his power so that they could be steadfast and endure through adverse circumstances with joy and also so that they could persevere in dealing with difficult people with joy. Finally, as born-again believers, we should always be grateful and give God thanks for the gift of salvation. And here in verses 12 to 14, Paul gives the Father thanks for the salvation of the Colossians for three reasons. In verse 12, he says, because the Father qualified them to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. You know, the gift of salvation is a free gift that's offered to God offered by God to everyone. We don't earn it in any way. All we have to do is accept it by faith. And by doing this, as we know, we're born again to a new life in Christ, and we become children of God and heirs of his kingdom. Galatians three twenty six to 29 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Secondly, Paul also gives the Father thanks because in verse 13, he delivered them from the power of darkness and translated them into the kingdom of the son of his love. And it's interesting to note here that the word translated had a special significance in the ancient world. You know, when one empire conquered another, the custom was to take the population of the defeated empire and transfer it completely to the conqueror's land. And it is in this sense that Paul is saying that we have been translated or completely transferred into God's kingdom. As born-again believers, the Colossians and us were liberated out from the power and the authority of darkness and were reestablished into Jesus' kingdom. We're no longer slaves of the world, but now we're citizens of the kingdom of God through his grace. Everything we have and everything we are now belongs to him. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And finally, in verse 14, Paul thanks the Father because the Colossians have redemption through Jesus' blood and the forgiveness of sins. And the word redemption here means to release a prisoner by the payment of a ransom. Through Jesus' shed blood on the cross, we've been set free from the bondage of sin and death. Hebrews 5.9 says, speaking of Jesus, not with, blood, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And Ephesians 1 7 says of Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And so now finally we get to look at the preeminence of Christ. Now the false teachings that were prevalent 
prevalent in Colossae were attempting to dethrone Jesus as God. And it's interesting to note that the letter to the Colossians was written only 30 years after Jesus' death. You know, Pastor X noted in his commentary, he says, So we can see that it didn't take long for people to corrupt the word of God, and it didn't take long for people to reject the word of God. So we have to be careful. We have to be firmly grounded. Now, some of the heretical teachings at that time declared that created order was evil, inferior, and opposed to good. God may have created the first order, but each successive order was the work of anti-gods or archons. The earth supposedly was surrounded by a number of cosmic spheres which separate man from God. And these spheres were ruled by archons who guard their spheres so that souls could not ascend from darkness to the realm of light. And I'm like, wow, that sounds like Star Wars. (laughs) Also being taught was that the body and soul were evil and man's spirit was asleep and ignorant. So it needed to be awakened and liberated by knowledge, which was attained by following all kinds of formulas. Um, those who were enlightened you know, were um, thought of themselves as being superior to everybody else who didn't have that special knowledge. And Jesus was considered to be only one of thousands of emanations from a great unseen God. They didn't think he was the way, the truth, and the life that he declared himself to be in John fourteen six. And so these heresies and more disrupted fellowship in the church in Colossae and caused much confusion. So Paul was compelled to write the letter to refute these crazy doctrines and to declare the truth of the gospel. So Paul starts off in verse 15 by declaring that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The first thing that Paul wants the Colossians to know is that Jesus is supreme. And so Paul declares that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And the Greek word here for image um, is icon, E-I-K-O-N, meaning image or representation. But icon also further denotes the idea of manifestation with the sense that God is fully revealed in Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says that the sun is the brightness of God's glory and the express or exact image of his person. In verses 15 to 18, Paul is going to declare Christ's supremacy in four ways. First, verse 15, he says Jesus is firstborn over all creation. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses take this to mean that Jesus was the first person to be created that he is a created being. But the Greek word prototokos, meaning firstborn used here, means supremacy in rank or position, not first child. Jesus existed before all created things. Therefore, he stands outside of creation. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Jesus is prior to 
to all creation. Second, Paul says that Jesus is creator. Verse 16 says, for by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. You know, the second thing that Paul wanted the Colossians to know was that Jesus is supreme because he was the creator of all things. And he is above all creation because he created it. He's separate from the creation. Therefore, he is greater than the creation. The apostle John declared of Jesus in John 1 to 3, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Notice also that the phrase all things, all in the Greek means all. Okay, so all things in heaven, all things on earth, all things that are visible, all things that are invisible. Paul declares also that not only were all things created by Jesus, but they were created for him, for his good pleasure and for his purposes. You know, being made by his power, all of creation was made according to his pleasure and for his praise. Therefore, everything that we say and do should be for the Lord's glory. It should be for his honor that he should be exalted in our lives. And one day, everyone will give him glory. Philippians 2, 9 to 11 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thirdly, Paul says that Jesus is sustainer. In verse 17, it says, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And the word consist in the Greek means are held together. You know, so in Jesus, all things are held together. He's the sustainer of all things. And the perfect tense um, that's used here tells us that he continues even now to hold all things together. And that apart from this continuous activity, everything would just disintegrate. How is this done? I have no idea. I know Pastor X has tried to explain the atoms and the protons and the neutrons. I I cannot uh, tell you. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I guess we'll have to ask Jesus when we get to heaven. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. And fourthly, Paul declares that Jesus is the head of the church. Verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. You know, notice, first of all, that Paul declares that Jesus is the supreme head of the church. And the word head in Greek means source or origin, as well as leader or ruler. Jesus is the source and he's the leader of his church because the church had its origin in him. And he supplies it with life through the Holy Spirit. Through his word, Jesus nourishes and cleanses the church. 
which Ephesians chapter 5 says. Paul also declares that Jesus is firstborn from the dead. And Paul didn't mean that Jesus was the first person to be raised from the dead because there were other people who have been raised from the dead. But he was the first to be resurrected with a new resurrected body. You know, the other people who had been raised from the dead, they had their same uh, material body. But Jesus didn't. He was able to appear and disappear. He walked through doors, and yet he was able to eat, and he was able to be touched. You know, Jesus' preeminence is also seen in that his resurrection was the most important one of all. Because without his resurrection, there could be no resurrection for others. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty to 23 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. For since by man came death, by man, meaning Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruit, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. And Paul lastly declares that in all things, Jesus is to have the preeminence. You know, Jesus is to be above everything else in our lives. Nothing should supersede the place of Jesus in our life. Not our husbands, not our boyfriends, not our children, not our grandchildren, not our family, not our friends, not our possessions, not our positions. And so we need to examine ourselves periodically and ask ourselves, am I allowing Jesus to have preeminence in my life? And if we will put Jesus first in our lives and live for him, our lives will be rich and full and satisfying. And his preeminence will, have, uh, will be a source of great strength for our faith in any situation. But if we put ourselves first, or someone or something else first, our lives will eventually be empty, futile, and frustrating. For we will be trusting in limited beings and things which are frail, and they're subject to change and failure. Jesus is preeminent and must have preeminence in our lives. He is all we need. As preeminent, Jesus is able to do, as Ephesians 3.20 says, exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. In verses 19 to 20, uh, Paul gives the reasons for Jesus' preeminence. And he declares two reasons. The first, Jesus is preeminent because in him is all the fullness of deity. Verse 19 says, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And the word fullness here in the Greek is the word pleroma, meaning the sum total of all the divine power and attributes. And this means that we need to look at no one except Jesus for the full revelation of God's character. As we see him in the Gospels, as we hear him preached, we can know what God is like. And the word dwell in Greek means to be at home permanently. So the, the sum total of all the divine power and attributes resides permanently in Jesus. In other words, 
Jesus is God. Colossians 2.9 will declare, For in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And secondly, Jesus is preeminent because he is the reconciler of all things in heaven and on earth. Verse 20 says, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Creation suffered a curse because of the fall. Sin and decay and death were the results. But through Jesus, everything in the universe will be reconciled except that which rejects him. For he is Lord of creation and he is the Lord of salvation. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And the result of that reconciliation is going to be peace with God. In verses 21 and 22, Paul gives the Colossians the method of this reconciliation. And he says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. And the word alienated here carried the meaning of a persistent and permanent condition. This alienation expressed itself in a mind that was hostile to God and resulted in evil deeds. And this is the way all people are without Christ. This is the way we were before we came to Jesus. Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 12 to 13, to remember when they were Gentiles in the flesh that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You know, being alienated from God is a terrible condition. But God provided the reconciling method. He took the initiative out of his great love for us, and he sent his son to die on the cross so that sinners who accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and Messiah can be reconciled to God. And once we we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then he covers us with his righteousness, and he presents us to the Father as holy, meaning set apart for God's use, as blameless, meaning without blemish, for Christ's sacrifice on the cross paid our sin debt in full, and as irreproachable in his sight, meaning free from accusations. When believers stand before the Father, covered in Jesus' righteousness, all the Father sees is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
Um, basically, this verse is conveying the idea that if we abide in Christ, if we continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of Jesus' return for us, then we're going to be okay. And we'll continue to produce fruit in our lives. But we need to grow in God's word, in prayer, in service to Jesus. And we need to daily die to ourselves, to our selfish and wicked desires. And that's the hard part, because we want, we want it both ways sometimes. It's hard to die to self, but we must do it. Jesus said in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Finally, in verses 24 to 29, Paul ends the letter by telling the Colossians that cost of ministry sometimes entails suffering. And his life is a witness to that truth. We need to remember that since Jesus is no longer present bodily, some people may take their hatred of Christ out on God's children. And there are Christians in the world today who are bearing witness of this truth. Paul also told the Colossians that the mystery or the hidden truth that the Gentiles were also included in the plan of salvation has now been revealed to all the saints. And finally, Paul reminds the Colossians that they needed to continue preaching, warning non-believers of their need to repent and return to God and of the coming judgment. They needed to continue teaching and educating believers in the wisdom of God. You know, the false uh, teachers were proclaiming the importance of a superior knowledge, which would help them attain a deeper spirituality. They also taught the importance of working your way up to God through a series of emanations and through the help of astrology and other things. You know, one commentator noted, it was all very complex and proudly intellectual. (laughs) But Paul refuted these heresies by presenting Jesus as firstborn, as creator, as sustainer of all things, as all-sufficient redeemer, and as head of the church. And ladies, I want to encourage you to continue to pray for wisdom to continue to study God's word every day, to know that Jesus is all-sufficient. He is really all we need. So we need to abide in him and then watch what wonderful fruit he will produce in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. And Lord, I just thank you, Father, for all that you have in your word for us Lord, you have not left anything to our imaginations or to our guessing. Father, you've made it all so very plain, and we thank you. And I just ask, Lord, that you would continue to work in these uh, wonderful sisters, Father, that you would help them to grow and mature in you, that you would help them to be steadfast, immovable, Lord, and um, just grounded in you, Lord. And I pray for traveling mercies for each and every one of them, Father, that they would arrive home safely. And I ask for your blessing upon us, Lord. Keep us and just continue to grow us uh, more and more like Jesus. 
And we just thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.